2: It's How Do We Fix It? with Richard and Jim.
1: Grunt. Life lessons from the military. Mary Roach. Mary, your book is one of the very first scientific books, or books with a scientific theme that I've actually read. Um, (laughs) And so, Jim's Jim's more of the of the science guy. Um, I thought it was great. I I really, really enjoyed it. Anyway.
3: Oh well, thank you so much. I have to confess, I don't read a lot of science books myself. But don't tell anybody (laughs) that. (laughs) I write them, but I don't read them.
4: Our show is about fixes.
1: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do
4: we we fix fix it? it?
2: How do we fix it?
4: We're talking about war and the military, not the killing, but the keeping alive.
1: So not the heroics on the battlefield, but the scientists, doctors, researchers, and designers who work quietly behind the scenes to improve the odds that the armed forces who go to war come back alive and at least less damaged than they would have been in conflict.
4: And what those researchers have discovered can help the rest of us live better lives, including our health, but even things like our clothes and our camping gear.
1: Science journalist Mary Roach is the author of Grunt, the Curious Science of Humans at War. She joins us via Skype from Oakland, California. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. You write in your book that courage doesn't always carry a gun or come on a stretcher, that sometimes courage is nothing more than a willingness to think differently than those around you. Tell us about a few of the extraordinary people you met along the way while doing work for your book.
3: I ended up spending time with people who had occupations that I'd never even heard of before, for example, military entomology. And I ended up speaking with this visiting, in fact, this man, George Peck, who at the time was devoting himself to the study of maggots, specifically maggots as a therapy for wounds and infections that are very difficult to treat. But but here was this man who uh, just, you know, he had this just passion for these little creatures, you know, because, you know, with IEDs, you've got serious... Uh, um, complications with infection because you're it, it's a buried explosive device so you are launching uh, dirt and sand and bacteria and fungus and things deeply into the tissue of the lower limbs and that creates all manner of problems with infection and so uh, here is this guy George Peck was like you know what this is something that was discovered in World War One that these old creatures actually are, are helpful and he was trying to You know, win people over at Walter Reed, which, as you can imagine, was uh, a bit of a challenge because there's a lot of resistance to, you know, maggots. They're gross. Like so many
4: things in your books, Mary, it's kind of disgusting and really fascinating at the same time.
3: That's kind of my hallmark. (laughs) Mary,
1: reading your book uh, and hearing your descriptions of these uh, researchers, scientists, doctors who are working – to keep more fighting men and women alive in wartime. I got the sense you were really impressed by them.
3: I was, I really was. I was, uh, when I started this project, I had spent no time with anyone in in the military. I really, it's not an area I'd, I'd looked into. I'd never really covered the science that's done there. And everyone, with the exception of the Pentagon, because I, didn't spend any time there or speak to people there. But uh, everyone that I, I spoke to really was tremendously committed. And the scientists and the medical folks, they don't get a lot of uh, exposure. They don't get a lot of coverage. I mean, people, when they write about war, when there are books or, or movies made about The military, they tend to be the high drama stories, the combat stories, the rescue stories, the, the, you know, the band of brothers. And and I understand that's the that's the big drama. But but these kind of quiet behind the scenes heroes, uh, I I found them inspiring and, and really just good people.
4: So tell us about the Natick Labs, the U.S. Army Soldier Research Development and Engineering Center.
1: Yeah, this is in Massachusetts, right?
3: Yeah, Natick is just a, a a geeks playground. It's the coolest place. I mean, there's Natick is where the military develops and tests kind of the accessories of war, not the weapons, but the uh the the uniforms, the protective gear. They've got this massive it's called the Dorio climatic chamber. It, it's a big building where you can simulate any kind of horrible, atrocious weather conditions you want, and that's for testing outerwear or sleeping bags. They have volunteers. These are actually soldiers who, this is a, they volunteered for duty to, uh, in some cases, do things like going and sleeping overnight inside the climate chamber, you know, testing a sleeping bag, or, you know, they may be testing a, a tent. Because soldiers are kind of the original backpackers there but in really extreme climates these are uh folks who are going into places where there's nowhere to check into a hotel or or pick up something to eat you got to carry it all with you a lot of um, american recreational gear are things that were developed uh, as a way to ford a raging river or survive in freezing climates overnight is
1: is is gore-tex one example
3: Gore-Tex is an example, yes. And as is permethrin, you know, if you buy treated camping gear that's got that mosquito repellent, that's a, that's a natic development. That's right. What
1: is Gore-Tex?
3: Oh, Gore-Tex, it's a waterproof and breathable, two really important elements when you're talking about somebody who's going to be out in the elements.
4: You know, if Napoleon said an army moves on its stomach, it also moves on its feet and it's got a backpack loaded with 95 pounds of crap. So how much effort does the military really put into getting this right?
3: They put a tremendous amount of effort into getting it right. It's always a bit of a dance, particularly with protective gear, because it's very heavy and uh, well, a lot not just the protective gear, but some of the more high tech items that troops are being given. Also, you got to have backup batteries, a lot of weight in batteries that you're having to carry around now. And you, if you talk to like, I spent some time with some army rangers who were of the opinion that uh, the, you know the, the, the answer is not always just to keep giving us more gear, because we got to carry that gear. And you're asking us to run around up and down mountains after men who really are just in bare feet and carrying a weapon. They're, they're, they're much more mobile. And, and they're, the feeling is that, you know, you, you don't know what we're going through. We got to be mobile and you're giving us too much crap. So there's and a trade-off
4: sometimes. Th- I mean-
3: yeah, there's a, definitely a trade-off. But then again, if you don't provide the protective gear, then you have a scenario where, and this happened, the protective gear was leaving the side of the chest open and snipers would aim for that area of vulnerability. And there's a way... You know, you could put an extra panel. You could cover that vulnerability, but then you're adding more weight, and it's very hot. You know, you 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 because are like, what's the Robert Downey? Who's the you know Iron the Man. big yeah Iron Man? There are efforts to sort of build Iron Man exoskeletons that would enable you to carry this heavy load, but it's like you're talking about moving two miles per hour with a battery life of maybe five hours and then what do you do you know you're out in the middle of nowhere with this giant heavy thing and if you fall over you can't even stand up so it's a tough call
4: one of the people that you uh interviewed is a woman who used to work as a wedding dress designer and now works for the u.s military what's her story
3: sure yeah the uh natick uh they hire they require for uh, the people who design protective gear and uniforms, a, a degree in fashion design. Uh, and uh, one of the women there had worked in for Priscilla of Boston, which has gone out of business since, but it was a purveyor of high-end wedding gowns. And I remember saying to her, and also uh, another woman in the lab, uh, Annette Lafleur, she had worked uh, designing swimwear, women's bathing suits. And I, And I remember saying, this was Thinking this was kind of a strange transition, and they assured me that it really wasn't, because you're talking with with wedding gowns, you're talking about a lot of layering of specialty fabrics with with bathing suits. This is a, very much a case where you're looking at specific fabrics that can handle a specific situation that is moisture it's got to be uh something that you can move easily in it's got to fit a certain way that's got to resi- be resistant to chlorine so those are a lot of the same considerations you have with military uniforms you know uh, what's this what's the the weather situation going to be what sorts of chemicals are you going to be c- coming in contact with does it have to be waterproof
1: and, and you say that silk underwear is popular among the troops why
3: well, silk has advantages uh, for, as a protective layer, and, and silk is very, very strong. Spider silk is, is one of the strongest textiles in terms of strength versus weight. And uh, so the, the military has been – they had a spider room at Natick where they were trying to figure out exactly the protein structures. They could sort of do synthetic silks because it, it's very – it's not only is it strong but also unlike cotton, it doesn't break into little bits and pieces which could increase the danger of infection because these little bits and pieces of fabric then get embedded in the wound. And silk tends to hold together better. So a pair of silk underwear also feels nice. Uh, breathable. Uh, A pair of silk underwear would be a a, a good protective layer in the case of an IED exploding nearby and that that material being blasted at high speed toward your body.
1: You mentioned that a lot of this work that the military does has applications for the rest of us.
3: Oh, the military tends to work very closely with private companies that that make you know they'll they'll sort of put out a call hey we need say a quieter velcro we'd like to have a Hmm. hook and loop closure like velcro but it's loud it might give away a soldier's position can you guys you velcro people you hook and loop closure people can you come up with something that would be quiet that was something that they were uh looking into when i was at natick
4: it's funny because uh, i know you 've written for outside magazine i 'm a long time former rock climber mountaineer do a lot of backpacking and stuff, and there are a lot of common challenges uh, between those, as you say you know soldiers in a sense are are first and foremost backpackers, um, and yeah, climbers were wearing silk underwear um, you know decades and decades ago, climbing everest and stuff and sometimes we think of military stuff coming technology coming from the military going to the private sector, but you but there 's also cases where something is developed in the private sector like the Camelback, you know, uh, drinking water reservoir in your backpack, which is now ubiquitous with soldiers. So that sometimes it's a two-way street, right?
3: Yes. So it's this long, evolved process, and it's rarely the case that the military invented it. Like one day they went, oh, we need this, and snapped their fingers. You know, it's a, it's a long, collaborative process.
1: Many of the solutions, the research we're talking about, is specifically for the military and doesn't have uh, outside applications. One example would be uh, some of the uh, research that's been done on reducing the number of deaths from IED explosions, especially after the Iraq war. Uh, What did you learn about how to protect against bombs?
3: Well, a lot of the IED explosions are going off underneath vehicles. So that was the I was at Aberdeen proving ground where they were trying to come up with a, a very specific crash test dummy for a bomb going off under your vehicle, which doesn't exist because we civilians don't drive around on roads where we're likely to have a bomb go off or underneath our car. A crash test dummy is designed for forces that would be unleashed in a head-on collision or, say, a side T-bone crash, and uh, crash test dummies for automobiles are really they're focusing on the head and the chest, and so they're they're not giving useful information, and that means you can't you can't evaluate these vehicles that are being provided by contractors to keep troops safe. So that was something that was going on at um, Aberdeen while I was there. They were testing a prototype of a crash test dummy. And you know, in order to test that, you got to make sure it, it's behaving like a human... Body And so they were using cadavers for that study. So, you know, that has my name all over it. Because <laughs> That's something so you're interested st- in. Calling yeah. Mary Roach. And well,
4: speaking of that slightly creepier, disgusting end of your oove, um, <laughs> the, you, you mentioned that in most wars throughout human history, it isn't bombs or bullets that have killed most of the service people. It's diseases, especially dysentery, uh, diarrhea, d- yeah,
1: diarrhea.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Millions of people, particularly kids, still die today from dehydration, from diarrhea or dysentery. And that was, if you look back to military conflicts in the 1800s, far more troops were dying of disease. Because what was going on, you're out, you you have a field camp, uh, so you've got hundreds and hundreds of soldiers and they're using an open pit latrine. And there's flies, thousands of flies.
1: And Mary, yeah. Mary, speaking of gross, there's a wonderful description in your book of what a fly does when it lands <laughs> on a piece of food. It what defecates and vomits first?
3: Well, yes, yeah, so a fly. Flies have this unusual way of eating. It would be really weird if we did that um, in restaurant. Like You'd have to rethink restaurants.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, I see where fly, this is going. <laughs> yeah,
3: The fly it digests its food outside the body. So it throws up on its food, lets it break down a little bit, and then basically sucks it up. Uh, So, yeah, and and also, you know, at at the same time, often defecates because it's making room for the the new food. So it's it's pretty gross what it's doing on your food. I'm not somebody who's at all squeamish, but ever since I uh, studied the fly and its contributions to – disease uh, and how it eats and what it does on your food. When I go into a restaurant, I see flies flying around. I'm like, this probably isn't a great place to be having lunch. <laughs> oh But one of the, the, the best innovations in terms of keeping soldiers healthy was air conditioning because now you had a mess hall where you could seal it. The windows are shut. No flies are getting in.
4: Now, you visited a small uh, U.S. military base in Africa where a lot of attention is given to keeping the the troops safe from this kind of threat. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Sure. I was at Camp Lemonnier, which is in Djibouti in North Africa. Djibouti is uh, next to Ethiopia. Uh, and a lot of counterinsurgency teams, units go out from there to Somalia, Yemen, North Africa. Uh These guys are not spending a ton of time on base. They're doing their work out in villages, say in Somalia, where they're they're not eating the food that's come from the base, which is by and large very safe. They're eating with the villagers. Uh, They're eating goat that might not have been refrigerated, and they're drinking water that might not have been filtered or treated. So they get really bad diarrhea and food and water poisoning all the time and these are you know we're talking about a navy seal team that may be uh going in and doing a pretty high risk operation and there are only two or three men and if one of them is really sick that's going to impact the success of that mission and that's also just incredibly unpleasant
1: on that happy note, this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our guest is Mary Roach, author of Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. What are some examples, uh, Mary,
0: of uh, a unique fix? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
2: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: That
3: saved lives. Well, there's a very uh, simple discovery. It was uh, a discovery by a Navy captain, Phillips. Uh, he discovered that if you add glucose to the rehydration salts you can actually get ahead of the the dehydration that's happening for diarrhea and that means people can drink this the rehydration liquids rather than getting an iv this is something that can you have it on hand that can just be consumed drunk drunk drank you can put it in a glass and consume it you don't have to make your way to a clinic and get hooked up to an IV. And that's that, been applied all uh, yeah. over
4: all over the world, including you walk into yes. any drugstore, they sell something called Pedialyte, which is for babies with diarrhea.
3: Yeah, that's correct. And that you know, and it, it, it seems like kind of a ho hum discovery, but the medical journal, The Lancet, referred to that as possibly the greatest medical advance of that century in terms of how many lives saved.
4: What else have they come up with to prevent the spread of dysentery and related diseases?
3: Uh, just something simple like, this is going back some years, putting screens on the mess tent. Uh, the diarrhea researcher, Mark Riddle, who I went to Camp Lemonier with, was testing a, actually three different antibiotics that could be the treatment would be one day rather than over the course of three or four days, which would mean you'd be back in action very quickly, which is important if you're a special operations person. And and that is huge in terms and of lives saved.
4: There's a chapter in your book, one of the tougher chapters, is called Below the Belt, and it's about about men who've suffered devastating injuries to the genitals. You went to Walter yeah. Reed Army Research Institute in Maryland, and you met a man named Gavin Kent White, Tell us about him,
3: sure, Gavin, an amazing man, young man, was outside the vehicle anyway the uh, i d went off in, a, in
1: Afghanistan, yeah
3: yes, and it went off, and he lost one leg and um part of another and had some damage to his penis and when i was when I was there, it was fairly minor in terms of cosmetic damage, but his urethra had been damaged. But they were removing this, they being the surgeons, removing a small rectangle of tissue from inside his cheek. And the reason they were doing, taking that tissue is that it's used to moisture. It's built to be moist. So you take this rectangle of cheek tissue, you know, uh, just a, a thin slice, and you roll it into a tube and you stitch it in place. And it works quite well. So that's the kind of... Uh, Innovation, that I love. It's just somebody thought, "Hey, I don't know what about what about inside the cheek? Well, I don't know. Let's try it." And uh, lo and behold, it works quite well.
4: And the fact that these de- dedicated surgeons and researchers are s- spend so much time working on these therapies and trying to help help these men get their function back, I-, I thought that was very inspiring.
3: I I did as well. There were some really inspiring folks at Walter Reed urologists, and also. Um, a couple of um, nurses there who are trying to get the Pentagon to focus on sex therapy, you know, uh, somebody who can come in and just speak openly and frankly about what's, uh, you know, what's going forward, you know, s- what is going to be like sexually, tor- and not just if you've had an injury to your genitalia, but but uh, say you're uh, some of the, the, the drugs that these guys are on, nerve stabilizers and, and painkillers and antidepressants, they have an effect on, on the sex life. Or even if, say, you've lost one limb and two hands, and uh, what sexual positions work? How do you have sex now that you don't have the limbs that you used to have? And no one wanted to have that conversation, and they still, most of them, don't. But there are some folks at Walter Reed who are saying this is important, and having support groups, and just doing it on their own time, uh, have just talking to veterans and, and saying, you know, I'm I'm a urologist or I'm a I'm a I'm a nurse at Walter Reed, and this is what we're going to talk about. So bring your questions. We're interested in audio. Um, I've spent all of my life in
1: sound, and there. You write about hearing loss being a special hazard for troops in fighting zones. That surprised me.
3: Right. Well, war is noisy. Anybody knows that. What's surprising? A couple of things. It's not the bombs and bullets per se. It is the exposure that you have over, say, eight hours in a troop. Carrier, you know, a tank. uh, That this is so. It's not as loud as, say, an M16 or or a bomb going off. Certainly, but uh, with hearing loss, it's also the amount of time that you're exposed to the sound. And yeah, you can put in earplugs, or you can put, you know, your protectors over your ears. But if you're a soldier and you do that now, you've lost. Some of your situational awareness, which for a soldier is key. Uh, if you're on a foot patrol, you walk far apart because if a grenade is thrown, uh, the idea is if everybody's 30 feet apart, and a, a grenade will may kill one person, but that way it won't kill three or four. So you're always walking far apart. Now, if you've got hearing protection in your ears or over your ears, it's hard to hear someone at the back of the. Platoon, who's who's saying something, and that's whatever they're saying may be vital to you saving your life. So, so soldiers tend not to wear the hearing protection that they're given because they'd rather save their lives than save their hearing. And the rates of hearing loss—it's the biggest um, VA expense. It's a billion a year, and it's uh, um, uh, it's it's almost it's just a given. If you're in special operations, say you're a, a Navy SEAL. You know you're going to come away with some hearing loss, but there there's a solution, uh, and this is it's very cool. I tried these on. They're called TCAPS, Tactical Communication and Protection System, and it's uh a, a, you put them over your ears. It looks like those things you see the people on the tarmac. You know, just a a covering ear cuffs
1: uh the guy it, the guys it, who are guiding the planes in
3: yeah, so what the what this system does is it it dampens a loud noise, you know so it's a damaging loud noise that's going to get dampened, but then it amplifies, say the sound of a human voice. The quiet noises are amplified, there's also a communications wireless communications built in so you can communicate with someone uh at the back of your formation. What are some of the
1: biggest problems that military doctors and, and scientists and researchers face?
3: Uh, well, hearing loss is one of them because there's no fix. But for that reason, the military has been trying more to think about preventing. And, and that's why the, you know, the TCAPs, so that was a a kind of a great way just to encourage people to do things that will prevent them from ending up with this problem that isn't really fixable. As a military, you have weapons and and defense systems and gear that you've had from the previous conflict. So now when you go into a conflict in another region and you face uh, an enemy that has a completely different set of weapons, you know, in the, in the past few conflicts, it's been um, you know, rock, rocket-propelled grenades. Well, there, yeah, you know, a Humvee wasn't built to withstand that, and that. That. So, troops are, yeah, you know, were were uh, getting killed, uh, and th- it wasn't. It wasn't because the mil. The, the U.S. military was like, oh, we did it wrong. It's like, no. Well, we didn't. We didn't know what we were in for. Now we know. Now we've got to create something else, and it's slow process getting contractors to design a, a vehicle that has an ability to withstand this new weaponry. So it's this constant scrambling to catch up with the enemy and what they're going to throw at you. And it and it's a slow-going process.
1: From the research you did on this book, the grunt work you did on grunt, uh, was there anything that changed the way you live your life? Any takeaways for you?
3: Absolutely. Okay. here's There was a, a military study that looked at something that they, the military called pre-drinking and that is before you go on a hike on a hot day you use you, you drink a lot of water and you basically use your stomach as a, a an auxiliary auxiliary storage tank uh, uh, an extra canteen and this, this was somebody actually, He did a test because some people were saying, oh, you just pee it out. It doesn't help you. And he found, I think it was only 25% was peed out and the rest of it you had available. It was as though you had all this water in a water bottle. So I'm a pre-drinker now.
4: So before you go for a hike or a bike ride, you make sure to tank up.
3: I tank up. I absolutely do. Also, because I'm a reluctant drinker. I am the kind of person who when I'm thirsty, I take a couple swallows, but I don't drink enough to really rehydrate myself to the point that I should be at. So if you're a reluctant drinker like me, (laughs) you should tank up and pre-drink.
1: That's a great how-do-we-fix-it angle. Okay, so drink water whenever possible.
4: (laughs) So, Richard, did you know we were going to get vital survival advice along with everything else in this show? So that's a good one.
1: Mary, you've been a delightful guest. Really have enjoyed
4: speaking with you.
3: Oh, it's been my pleasure. You guys are great.
4: All right. Thank you so much, Mary.
3: All right. Thanks, you guys.
1: Jim, a word of explanation to our patient listeners who hopefully are still with us. This show is running longer than most because Mary just had so many interesting things to say, which means you and I have a lot less to say. Well,
4: you know, and it wasn't as much about solutions as it is about the search for solutions and the people who do that. But one thing I was really struck by was this constant dilemma. And it's something I'm I, as you know, I'm writing a book about disasters. It comes up in all of our lives is the balance between making things safer and then coping with the problems that that extra safety might entail. So you can cover your soldiers in all kinds of protective gear, but if they can't move, they might still be more vulnerable.
1: One of the things that Mary said in her book was all military clothing has to be comfortable because if it isn't, they're not going to
4: wear it. They're like, yeah, yeah, they're not going to wear it. And it's that, not going to have any use. That's true in so many areas. But but mostly what I, my takeaway is the important work that people do behind the scenes, these doctors and researchers. And, you know, when they, for a topic that it has its elements of, of sadness and, and, and death and violence, there's also something very inspiring to me about these people who are dedicated to to helping our service people who are going out in harm's way.
1: Which inspires me to say goodbye. <laughs> How do we fix it? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Uh, thanks, Miranda, as always, for some questions that I hadn't thought of asking and uh, making the show more interesting. If that sounds patronizing. Sorry. Um, let's do that differently. Um
4: you know she's going to keep all this. Yeah, beginning. she's going to she keep edits all- this, She's, she's going to keep the whole she's,
1: thing. The whole thing is oh, what I just said? Yeah, of course. She's going to keep that in? I would. Oh. Uh, and How Do We Fix It is a production of Davies content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Thanks for listening.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too.